Oh, praise the Lord. Amen. What a great morning. Baptism Sunday. You can't beat it. An installment of two deacons. I will say, though, however, we have to pray for those uh, teaching in the Bible beginners in the nursery because we've loaded them up with cupcakes and Capri Sun. Those kids. So let's be praying for them. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Oh, what am I saying? 13. I looked at it and said, now the serpent was more... And I thought, that's not what we're... Genesis 13. I promise I, I prepared for this passage. Genesis 13. We're going to read the whole, whole chapter. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. Now Lot, who was going with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while living together, for their possessions were so abundant that they were not able to live together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners, exceedingly so, against Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Abram, <coughs> after uh, Lot separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can, be, can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land throughout its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. There he built an altar to Yahweh. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege, the privilege of coming together to be instructed by your holy and inspired word. We're so thankful for the testimony that was born this morning through baptism, and most of all, we're thankful for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray for the uh, teachers and the helpers and the nursery workers as they deal with uh, these wonderful, blessed children that you've given to us. 
uh, give them extra patience this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we come this morning, not to the third, but to the 13th chapter of our study in the book of Genesis. And the title for today, Lot's Lusting, Abram's Trusting. Where, as you just heard in the scripture reading, we are given a tremendous real-life historical example of a principle that the Apostle Paul implored with the church at Corinth to remember, that true children of God are to walk by faith and not by sight. That the true man or woman of God looks not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are, it, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We'll see a demonstration of this right here in the 13th chapter of Genesis. In fact, we'll see the testimony of two men, a faithful man and a foolish man. The faithful man who set his gaze on the things above, on that which is eternal, and the, the foolish man who set his gaze upon the things of the earth, on that which is temporal, transitory, fleeting, momentary, passing away, and will one day all be gone and burnt up. So let's just dive right in here this morning. We've got so much to get to, so little time. Moses writes in verse 1, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. So right from the get-go, we see Abram's returning from his somewhat spontaneous flight to Egypt after a great famine in the land which he was to receive as an inheritance, the promised land, Hebrews chapter 11. I thought Brad did an excellent job last week at explaining Abram's travels from Haran to Canaan, then to the mountain east of Bethel as he set up his tents with Bethel, Bethel to the west and Ai now to the east, building an altar to the Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord and worshiping the name of the Lord God Almighty before going down through the Negev to Egypt where he had apparently forgotten everything that Yahweh had just told him. Hey, welcome to Canaan. Look around. This is all yours. I promise I will give you this land. For I am God the Almighty. This is my world. This is my earth. It's my land to give. For I am its creator. And in an act of sheer divine favor alone, and according to my sovereign good pleasure alone, even though you deserve the exact opposite, Abram, I'm going to give it all to you. It's yours. I will give it all to you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. In fact, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram, sounds great. Let me build this altar and and offer a sacrifice to the Lord, whose promises I'm standing firmly upon in this hour. I will praise you. Ooh, you know, the Canaanite is here. They're clear up to Shechem. That's not good. Oh, you know, things are getting kind of scarce around here. This is not good. All right, everyone, you know what? Pack up your stuff. Let's head down to Egypt. I just don't have a good feeling about how things are going in Canaan right now. And so to Egypt they go. Abram, Sarai, Lot, all that belong to them, verse 1 says, they arrive in Egypt. I'm sure you noticed something that was missing in the second half of chapter 12 that was present in the first half. And what was that? The voice of the Lord. 
a command from the Lord and subsequently an altar to the Lord. Nowhere did we read of Yahweh saying, you know, Abram, it turns out there's a famine here in this land. So instead of settling here, you take your family down to Egypt where your, where your people will be safe, your bellies will be full. You go down there, relax for a little bit, okay? I'll make sure this place is worthy of your habitation by the time you return. Sorry for the inconvenience, Abram. You know why we didn't see the, that command in this text? You know why we didn't see it there? Because such a divine command wasn't given. This was Abram calling the shots in unbelief, which is evidenced by the dysfunction and destruction that followed. Abram goes down, he enters into Egypt, and almost immediately, on the basis of a lie, at minimum, on a half-truth, he loses his wife. I mean, good night. The guy lost his wife. He allows his wife to literally be taken by Pharaoh. Picture this scene in your head for a minute here. It's almost the second they set foot in town. Sarai is whisked away by the officers of Pharaoh, only to see them return with a bunch of animals. <laughs> what must have Abram be, been thinking at this moment here? Oh, my word. I have strayed from the promised land. I've lost my wife, my sister wife. I've lost her. And, and the damage doesn't stop there. I've also lost my reputation, my integrity. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. Pharaoh takes Sarai in. Uh, the Lord strikes Pharaoh and all his household with all these plagues. I've brought chaos to this kingdom. I've brought shame on the Egyptian people, which is not good, by the way, which is not pleasing to the Lord. How do we know? Well, he will go on to tell Moses. Yahweh will go on to tell Moses, you shall not abhor an Egyptian, for you were a sojourner in his land. The Lord's people don't lie to or intentionally harm unbelievers, right? I mean, we're not Muslims here. Yeah. Abram brought chaos to the house of Pharaoh until the Lord causes the Egyptian king to give Sarai back so he can fulfill his covenant promise. And it's then and only then that Abram tucks tail and heads back up through the Negev, right back to the place where he once worshipped. That's chapter 13, verse 1 in a nutshell. And again, what else was missing in Egypt besides a divine command? An altar to the Lord. There was no altar in Egypt. There was no communion with the Lord in Egypt, seeking the will of the Lord in Egypt. No. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, was all Abram's self-seeking, which is common for folks who are living in unrepentant sin, which was Abram in Egypt, evidenced by his self-preservation, self-exaltation, self-glorification. And what follow, followed is what always follows when our eyes are set upon the things of the world and not upon the things of the Lord. Utter humiliation. But it's so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy. It's so easy to focus on the temporal, to focus on the lusts of the flesh even. And this makes sense. As Brad mentioned, we are not yet glorified. There's still a war being waged inside every heart of every believer living today. Our spirits and the spirit of God who dwells within us are literally at war with our flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you want, Paul tells the Galatian church. 
That's just the reality of the believer's remaining life on this earth. The spirit is willing, Christ says, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. We are a weak people. We are hindered by these mortal bodies, these temporal shells, these carcasses, these bodies of death, Paul tells the Romans, these mortal bodies which are constantly yearning after that which never satisfies, which doesn't even have the power to satisfy beyond the point of instant gratification uh, and momentary exhilaration anyway. It can offer us a little bit of pleasure for a season. We Christians are all battling continually against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The, the true believer is not rid of these temptations upon their conversion. On the contrary, we are now engaged in war with them. Our spirits are waging war with our flesh because our spirits know that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And as we heard this morning, the life we now live, we live for him. Isn't that right? Therefore, we don't operate according to the flesh. We're in a battle against its desires. And we don't despair about this battle. In fact, we praise the Lord for the war that's being waged within us. It's a good thing. You see, this war is a tremendous blessing. We love this war. And we pray and long for the victory of the Spirit over the flesh because we know that the alternative is death. If there was no war, if there was no conviction of sin, no mourning over sin, no turning from sin in the strength of his spirit, but rather a constant pandering to the flesh, a wanton sinning, if there was no war within us, there would be no salvation. Do we understand that? If there was no war within us, there would be no salvation. There would be no true regeneration. No regeneration. There would be no true conversions. Only false conversions, which abound in churches all across this nation. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so, my brothers and sisters, praise the Lord for the war that is within you, if there is one. Praise God for the battle that's being waged against your members. And frankly, praise the Lord that you will often fail. In fact, you will always fail. Spiritually, when operating according to your own wisdom and strength. And then, praise the Lord that, as Jeremiah says, the loving kindness of Yahweh indeed never cease. The loving kindnesses. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, therefore I wait for him. Abram experienced this firsthand in chapter 13. In verse 3, we read that by the grace of God, Abram turned back from Egypt. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which had been made there formerly. There, there it is, the altar, still standing, by the way. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. So what's the takeaway for this po first point here? Well, that's easy. <laughs> Have you made some trips down to Egypt in your life, believers? Have you doubted the promises of your Lord and sought to go your own way? Take heart this morning. 
And like Abram, turn from your rebellious, self-serving ways and come back to the mountain between Bethel and Ai. For Yahweh has a loyal love, a steadfast love, a never-failing compassion for those who are his. Have you made a really bad decision in your marriage? Decision that almost cost you your marriage? Take heart, my brothers and sisters, and like Abram, turn from your sin and come back to the altar of worship, for Yahweh is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. Have you caused all kinds of chaos in not only your own life, but in the lives of others because of some decision that you made, which maybe even included some form of deception? Well, take heart, my brothers and sisters. Like Abram, you may have to deal with some of the consequences as the, the truth is brought to the light. You may be served some humble pie as you recognize your iniquities and take steps to, to, to correct them and apologize for them. But as you eat that humble pie, know that the same merciful God is giving you the opportunity, even this morning as you hear my voice, to confess your sin, to turn from your sin, repent of your sin, and to rest in Yahweh as your portion and to wait upon him with all of your very soul, your everlasting soul. Wait upon the Lord. He is your portion. He will forgive you. He will be gracious to you and merciful to you if you would but call out to him. For his loving kindness is more than sufficient to supply your every need, including an abundance of forgiveness and grace, which he loves to pour out upon his saints. He loves it. So I I would implore you to come back to Yahweh who extends grace upon grace to those who are his. And that's exactly what we'll see in the rest of this chapter. As Abram grows significantly from this erroneous trip, not saying he won't slip up again. (laughs) He's going to slip up again. In fact, in chapter 20, he actually does something very similar. He loses his wife again. He will still sin, but the trajectory of his life, you see, is one of holiness and godliness, okay? which is the case for all true believers in this place today. We sin, but it goes up. The trajectory keeps going up. Uh, we can rejoice, ultimately, and give thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in these things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, about this wealth, about these riches, Moses writes in verse 2.2 in your outline, that Abraham was very rich in livestock, very rich in silver and in gold. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Moses writes that Abram was very rich. The word for rich here is kavad, which actually means heavy, heavy, weighty. He was heavy with possessions, including silver and gold. Now, where he got the silver and gold, we don't know. He got some oxen and sheep and donkeys along with male and female servants from Pharaoh on account of Sarai, but we don't know where he got these metals. Either way, he was rich. He was rich, truly rich, as was Lot. Lot was rich. Verse 5, now Lot, who was going with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. These flocks and herds were what demonstrated true wealth in that time and place, not Bentleys or Beamers or 80-inch flat screens in the, in the crib. Uh, Not diamond watches, blinging, or tight three-piece suits with no socks and loafers. Not the 
private jets, multiple homes, and sprawling real estate enjoyed by the political elite of our day who continually, continually lecture the common man on the evil of such things. No, not even successful businesses, booming investment portfolios, or sizable 401k accounts, but animals. Flocks herds, the size of their herds, along with the number of their tents and servants. This is what denoted great wealth here. Both Abram and Lot were weighty in these things. They were heavy with wealth. So much so that instead of bringing the peace and the comfort that were all promised by the folks on TBN, their riches actually brought strife and conflict. Okay? In fact, they had too much wealth too much. Verse 6, the land could not sustain them while living together, for their possessions were so abundant that they were not able to live together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, but they weren't alone. Entire people groups were already there and vying for the land and its resources. Verse 7 says, now the Canaanite and Perizzite were living in the land. How would you like to be known as a parasite? We have a term for them today, actually. Politicians. (laughs) Now, before we move on, is it wrong to be wealthy? To, To have many possessions? To have nice things, even? Answer, no. If you can handle it. Now, what do I mean by that? If you can handle, not so much the weight that comes with it, the strife or conflict that it could cause you, the target that is almost always uh, placed upon your back from either jealous family members or the modern-day parasites I just mentioned. But if you can handle it in your own conscience, if your own, you can handle it in your own heart, in other words, if you don't treasure your treasure more than you treasure your creator, you know what I'm saying? Money is not evil. Wealth is not evil. It's from the Lord. But the love of wealth, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And some, by aspiring to it, have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, incidentally, that passage doesn't mean a person can turn away from the salvation. No true Christian can ever lose their salvation. Ever. But rather, those who exchange God's truth for anything in this world, whether gold or philosophical inclinations, will be considered apostate from biblical truth. In the case of wealth, anyone who loves their possessions, their riches, their money, more than they love the word of God, the people of God, the commands of God, Uh, provide us with a clear indication, my brothers and sisters, that they are not truly a possessor of the Spirit of God. And you will eventually know them by their fruits. The rich often bear many unique burdens that the so-called poor do not bear. Uh, Matthew Henry said this, Abram was very heavy, so the Hebrew word signifies, for riches are a burden. There is a burden of care in getting them, fear in keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden of account at last to be given up concerning them. 
Great possessions do but make men heavy and unwieldy. Great possessions do but make men heavy and unwieldy. And again, this is uh, an easy trap for a believer, yes, even the true spirit-indwelled believer, to fall into. Where instead of owning things, their things end up owning them. Where instead of having possessions, their possessions actually possess them and cloud their judgment. Where the allure of the temporal, uh, the temporal causes their gaze to be taken off that which is eternal. They're just looking at what's on the earth. In chapter 12, Abram was going down this path, and he was going down quickly, right? I'm going to save my own skin here. I'm going to see if I can buy some time, maybe barter for food using false promises of exchanging my wife at some point. Then I'll flee at the last moment. Hopefully they don't take her. I'm going to lie a little bit, maybe to preserve myself. I'll receive the gifts from Pharaoh and then be on my way. But suddenly his wife is ripped from his hands. It's not looking good for Abram here, but God... But God has mercy. Those mercies that are new every morning. Sarai comes back, and Abram comes back, back to the altar. God draws him back, and he worships God. And is now giving a huge test, specifically related to his wealth. Abram, will you continue to love the things of this world... Or will you continue to worship me and love me? You have so much in terms of temporal wealth and status. And now familial strife has arisen because of this wealth. Canaanites and Perizzites were in the land. Resources are still scarce here, buddy. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Abram? What does he do? Has he changed? Has the trajectory maintained its upward ascent, uh, its inclined, even amidst uh, various trials and dips and sins along the way? Is it still going up? Of course it is. Abram is a chosen man of God here. This is a chosen, called man of God. Don't forget this. He's no carnal Christian, a.k.a. non-Christian. No, this was a man who was justified by God. Of course the trajectory continued to rise. He's among the elect of God. Verse 8.3, So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, I will go to the right. Or if to the right, I will go to the left. Ah, yes, blessed are the peacemakers, Right? In a moment of spiritual clarity, Abram recalls to mind the promises of the God in whom he trusts, including that this land, perhaps even the land which Lot would go on to choose, would one day all belong to him anyway. Certainly his descendants. Therefore, he denied the lust of the eyes. He denied the instant gratification of the flesh, as we'll see, all for the sake of maintaining unity within the family and instead demonstrated that he has now truly begun to look on the things that are unseen. That heavenly city we read about in Hebrews 11. What really matters? He has a long-term vision, an eternal vision. And I think this is a good reminder to us when dealing with unbelieving family members. 
Sometimes, most of the time, it's very wise to put peace between family members above temporal blessing. Now, we don't compromise with unbelievers. We don't kowtow to unbelievers in terms of forsaking truth. We don't ever shrink back from our unbelieving friends, family, or the general public and are standing firm on biblical truth. However, for the sake of maintaining as much unity as possible, for the sake of, as Paul says, living peaceably with all men, sometimes temporal blessings or benefits can be forsaken, okay? And sometimes the kindness that we show to our unbelieving family members actually leads, leaves the door open to witness to them later on down the road. Well, what's one practical example of this? Well, arguing politics, for one, or economics, or cultural issues. The COVID nonsense we all went through a few years ago is a good example of this. There are some things that I argued with my unbelieving family members about where I clearly dominated and won the debate based on facts alone, but the way in which I did it... <laughs> I'm not kidding. No. <laughs> Where's that one on pride here? No. Uh, <laughs> but the way in which I did it, case in point, all but shut the door to future opportunity for spiritual discourse. Now I look back, especially in light of this text, and I think, eh, probably could have been handled better in light of eternity, right? Well, here we see a great example of this. Abram's willingness to be a peacemaker, even at his own expense. He says, listen, you make the choice, brother. <laughs> Whatever you want. This is a tremendous example of Abram's trusting his Lord. This is the response of a faithful man of God. But now we see the other side. The foolish man. And the downward trajectory of Lot. The waywardness of Lot. Even for a prolonged season. Abram says, man, your choice. Which way do you want to go? Verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses said. It was like the garden of Yahweh. This is a reference to the garden of Eden. That's how good this place looked. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So... Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham lived, excuse me, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And then Moses says in verse 13, as an appetizer to what's coming in chapters 18 and 19, and now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners, exceedingly so, against Yahweh. Lot lifts up his eyes and the lusting begins. The land was a delight to Lot. It titillated his senses. He no doubt began fantasizing about the possibilities. Oh, I can put my sheepfold over there. The oxen can graze over there. I'll put the tents of my servants in that valley over there. Maybe a nice cabin on, cabin on that flat land by the river. Oh, I can see it now, my Polaris six-wheeler going up through the brush of the valleys, a nice bow stand in that oak over there. Okay, okay, I'm going to the east. I'll take that place. Good luck, old man. Now, again, is it wrong to be rich? 
No. Is it wrong to have a Polaris? No. <laughs> it's not the brand I would choose, but. Is it wrong to have land? No. A lot of land? No. Good land even? No. But was Lot's heart able to handle these good things? Answer, no. A big, fat no. How can we be sure? Because Lot was already super rich, and yet he wanted more, even if it meant that Abram had to take the less attractive portion. Look what has just happened here. Abram, the patriarch, the spiritual head of the family, the one whom Lot followed around his whole life, who has proved himself to be a faithful man of God, even after being humiliated and restored. A man who, not just a moment before, put, his, uh, put the love of his family above himself and the Lord of, uh, above himself was just taken advantage of by Lot. Who, with this decision, knowingly and willfully put his uncle at a disadvantage. You see what he did? As without skipping a beat, he says, there, that's where I want to go, with no regard for the patriarch. Proving, again, as one commentator said, the eyes see what the heart loves. The eyes see what the heart loves. You know, Lot was not a good man. He was not a good man. He was not a faithful man, not a believing man, at least at this point. We do know, however, that Lot would be called righteous. But it likely happens later, much later. In fact, not even in Genesis, but actually in Peter's second epistle where he hearkens back to Genesis. At some point, Lot was declared righteous. But I have to be honest, unlike with Abraham, I'm not seeing where this evidence of regeneration was on display. But Peter said it. He said, if Yahweh rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who go after the flesh in its corrupt lust. And, it's despi and despise authority. That sounds like Lot to a T, that last part. But at some point, he was declared righteous by God. I don't believe personally that Lot was called at this point in the narrative in, in chapter 13, but apparently he was later in Genesis 19. I think it's safe to say that the Lord may be awaking him to the reality of sin and evil in the world. But again, at this point, the spiritual trajectory of Lot was downward without any sight of spiritual conflict within. Okay? Here he chose the good land at the expense of his relationship with Abram. Uh, then we'll see he inches closer to Sodom. Okay? He set his tent next to the wicked city, his tents which was already full of wicked men, men whose charming conduct we'll consider for three straight weeks in April, Lord willing. But not before we see Lot move into that city for himself. Then we'll see him sit at the gate of the city, which some believe means he ended up being one of their leaders, their elders. Not before he, he saw his daughters engaged to some men from the city and his wife 
fall in love with the city. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That was the desire of not only his eyes, not only his flesh, but of also his depraved heart. At this point, Lot loved the things of this world. He loved this dying world, this wicked world, which Moses said was characteristic of the men of Sodom who were evil and sinners, exceedingly so. And not only evil in general, but intentionally and deliberately against Yahweh, much like many of the people in our time and place. Now listen to what Calvin said about this moment in Genesis 13. Quote, Therefore, seeing that he was led away solely by the pleasantness of the prospect, Lot pays the penalty of his foolish cupidity. Let us then learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted, but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unawares with many evils, just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Calvin says, do not trust your eyes. May we always remember this moment in Lot's life where he made a choice to set his gaze upon the seemingly good land, to set his tents near the prosperous city and to forsake his relationship with not only his uncle but with his creator as well, at least for now. May we not be like Lot, and placing our trust in the things of this earth, in the things that are seen, which I believe is a constant danger for our place and in our time. Outside the church, sure, but even within it. I was telling the elders at our meeting last week, I, I was personally convicted by this text. I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I looked at this and thought, man, how true can this be in my own life at times? As a citizen of this prosperous nation, the richest nation in the world, for well over two centuries, where most of the, whereas most of the world survives on $2 a day, we're sitting fat and happy here in America. And although I don't have exceeding wealth, I mean, you don't come to churches like ours to make money as a preacher, a lot of money. <laughs> you go to the church down the street, though. That guy's pulling in some big bucks. Uh, I'm just saying, I'm, I don't suffer. I'm not hungry. I'm not begging on the, on the streets. Compared to the rest of the world, I'm... I'm the rich man talked about throughout the scriptures. So, so I thought, man, we have to be extra careful in this church. It's kind of a wake-up call, which frankly is the beauty of going verse by verse, right? The text dictates what we're going to talk about and preach about. Uh, listen to what Bruce Waltke said on this passage. Paradoxically, God's largesse, not famine, provokes the problem of scarcity of land. And Abram's generous relinquishment brings peace and God's further blessing. These days, an economy of scarcity and an assumed consumerism lie behind both capitalism and communism. But true Christianity renounces consumerism. Instead, Christians are to relinquish their rights in order to enrich others, trusting God's promises to provide. Abraham, securing God, can give up his land. When we are secure in Christ, we do not have to grasp greedily for possessions. Oh, that is so good. So good it hurts. So when con confronted with texts like these, I have to ask myself, does this describe me? Am I a slave to things? Am I a slave to consumerism where I can just order things with the click of a button and have it show up on my doorstep in two days? Same day if it's $25 of qualifying purchases? 
And I said, well, yeah, I can see it in some ways. Therefore, I have to recognize it and confess my sin and turn from my wicked ways. Can the same be said for you? How about your own life? Or, oh, may this text be like a sword that pierces, in the flesh, that pierces the flesh in the war that's being waged inside of us. Let this be a text that brings us to our knees in humble repentance, transparent confession with sincere, contrite hearts and a deep longing for not only, not only for Yahweh to forgive us of our sin, not only to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but also with an overwhelming desire to be made more like his son. His son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he whom he also made the world and this world and all that is in it, the one who came into this earth that he spoke into existence, yet didn't even have a place to lay his head. Let us have that in mind as we strive to set our gaze continually on the things above where Christ is and not on the things of this corrupted and cursed, fleeting, dying earth that is passing away along with its what? Desires. It's lusts. Jesus said, man cannot serve both God and money. There's no longer room in the Christian heart for the love of money. We cannot love money. John reemphasized this truth, saying, do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever, which begs the question, what is the Father's will then? Well, again, Jesus tells us, for this is the will of my Father. Do you ever ask yourself that question? What's the will of God for my life? What's God's will for my life? Well, Jesus will tell you. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son, believes in Him, should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Look on the Son. Believe in the sacrificial death, triumphant resurrection, and glorious ascension of Christ for sinners, the Christ who was raised from the dead, who ascended back up into heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father on high, who accepted his perfect payment for sin at the cross, vindicating him and allowing him to then send his spirit from on high to indwell all those who belong to him, all of his true children, the true children of God who are now able to walk by faith and not by sight. The true faithful man or woman of God who looks not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. There's nothing for you in this world, Christian. There's nothing for you in this world. Our Lord tells us to not love this world. Why? Because it ain't worth loving. This world is not worth loving. It's certainly not worth compromising your Christian testimony or forsaking your everlasting soul over the things that rust and fade. 
Ask yourself this question if you don't believe me. What good is the portion Lot chose in Genesis 13 doing for him now? How are things in that beautiful land, land and city going right now? This guy didn't even last half a century before he saw it all burned up and his wife killed in the process. It's the same for us. All this stuff, all this stuff will be gone. It's going to be gone. So may we not be so foolish again to lust after that which rusts and rots and fades. We would all do well to remember this text when tempted by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And we would all as Christians, as true born-again believers in the gospel, do well to remember Abram's response at the end of this text where he is told to lift up his eyes, right? As Yahweh again speaks, verse 14, Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. That's what kings and leaders did in those days. They'd walk around the land that they ruled over, that was given to them. You know, it's been said that this allusion to dust here is a reference to Abram's physical descendants. In a couple of chapters, we're going to see mention of the stars of the sky of, uh, representing his spiritual descendants. Maybe so. Uh, we don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that God always fulfills his covenant promises. Always. Abram was starting to recognize this. And so his response was one of humility, trust, submission, and worship of the Lord God, the Almighty. Verse 18 says, Then Abram moved his tent, lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. There he built an altar to Yahweh. Back to the place of worship. Back to the place of worship. Can the same be said of you this morning, my brothers and sisters? Have you fixed your gaze on the things above? where Christ is? Have you turned from this world? Have you turned from this corrupted world and turned to your creator by divine grace alone through faith alone in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the precious promises of eternal life in his presence forever and ever? Eternal bliss in a place where there is no more sin. There is no more selfishness. No more deception, no more pride, no more lusting in our hearts. Where there are no more tears or pain or sadness or mourning, where there is no more strife or conflict or even that war that's now being waged in our members. But rather, it's a place of only joy and realized hope and contentment and a peace an everlasting unfading undefiled peace that lasts for all of eternity on a new earth and new heavens in the presence of your lord is this true of you this morning is this true of you i would invite anyone hearing my voice this morning to know so great a salvation even some who are hearing god's call through his word for the first time today i bid you come to him 
Come to him. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him the glory, great things he hath done. I bid you come. Turn from your sin. Turn from this wicked world and come to him today by his grace alone. He is both willing and able to save your everlasting soul, even this very moment, if you would but come to him by faith in his gospel. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, I bid you come to him today. And then I would invite you all, all of his children, all the faithful, both young and old, to turn your eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face. And when you do, it's truly amazing how the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray together as we have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the sweet, sweet promises of your word. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We need them every morning. We thank you for your loving kindness, your unfailing love, your steadfast love for those who belong to you. We're so grateful. So grateful to be instructed by your word this morning to be changed by it, transformed by it. May you do that through the strength of your spirit and for your glory alone. I pray for anybody who's here who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would cause them to believe, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you by faith. And you are worthy of their praise as well as ours, but it's a delight to give it to you. And we do so now in Jesus' name. Amen.